Hi, I'm Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio. Did you know that the word jihad means effort, struggle, striving? And that's what we're doing here. We're making effort, struggling and striving to discover the truths about the things that the corporate-controlled mainstream is not admitting. If you like this kind of radio, you can subscribe at truthjihad.com. Just click on the subscribe at Substack link. You'll get early access and free downloads. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome. This is the special live edition of Truth Shihad Radio. I'm Kevin Garrett, broadcasting from an undisclosed location deep in the Wisconsin woods. And today is a, a very special day to be doing this show it is May 13th, 2022, which is the 105th anniversary of the Miracle of Fatima. The uh, Miracle of Fatima, in case you've forgotten, was that apparition in Fatima, Portugal, seen by three children. One of them became Sister Lucy, as she's sometimes known, and it led to a huge uh, to-do in the Catholic Church and in global politics. So tonight, in commemoration of the Miracle of Fatima, I'm talking to two of our leading experts on this topic. In the second hour, Dr. Peter Czerznowski of SisterLucyTruth.org will be coming back on. And here in the first hour, we're very pleased to have on Truth Jihad Radio, Gary Jufri. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Plot Against the Pope. And he is credited by pretty much everybody, the mainstream, Wikipedia, etc., etc., as the foremost proponent of the Siri thesis that the Vatican was taken over by a Freemasonic coup d'etat in 1958, and that coup may have had something to do with the third secret of Fatima. So let's get into it. Hey, welcome, Gary. It's good to have you. Good to talk with you, Kevin. Yeah, so I, I think it's it's amazing to me how this... Uh, this, well, different lines of research from people starting on different places sometimes end up converging. And my way of looking at a whole lot of things has converged with you, yours and uh, a fair number of other people who consider themselves traditional Catholics. And this uh, Fatima issue is very much at the heart of where, uh, I guess, the, the church has uh, kind of gone into a, a conflict and the world is, is in, in a bigger conflict, and now we're seeing the beginning of what many people suspect could turn out to be World War III, uh, a.k.a. Armageddon, uh, in Ukraine. So maybe we, I don't know quite where to start. These are huge issues. Maybe you could introduce yourself and discuss, how did you become the foremost proponent of the so-called Siri thesis uh, about the coup in the Vatican? Well, uh, I don't claim that title. Uh, other people have come before me on this, such... Uh uh, most notably, uh, Louis Hubert Remy. He was the one that really uh, broke this story. Uh, at least, uh, by 1985, he had broken it wide open. Although other authors had talked about it, 
in the 1980s. Actually, I had been alerted that something like this might have happened as far back as 1974 uh, during a traditional Catholic conference that was being held at Houston. Uh, but um, it wasn't until Remy's article came out entitled uh, Cardinal Siri, Could He Be the Pope? Uh, which um, appeared in the Sangre de Cristo News Notes, which was a privately produced newsletter by Father Daniel Jones in the West Cliff, Colorado, is the first English translation of, of uh, Louis Remy's article, which had first appeared, I think, in 1986 in the um, French journal Sous le Bonnier, under the banner. And it, it, it was a... Um, an, an account of three men that went to interview Cardinal Siri in Genoa before he was before he was forced into retirement. Um, uh, Francois Delay, the Marquis de la Francorée, and of course Louis Remy went to see him. And using very diplomatic jargon, they just asked him finally point blank, "Are the rumors about your election and overthrow as uh, the Pope are they true?" And uh, Siri really wouldn't answer the question. He just said, I'm bound by the secret. The secret is horrible. Many terrible things have happened. I could write books about the different conclaves at which I was present, but um, I can say nothing. So he wouldn't deny it. And so um, uh, they added that certain people had uh, talked to him at other times and, and uh, had uh, uh, he had confirmed to them that yes, he was elected. And matter of fact, I, I had actually interviewed his his uh, niece some years ago in Italy, and uh, she basically said the same thing. And and uh, uh, she had known that he was pope, but uh, she, she was terrified. She matter of fact, um, she would hardly speak to me above a whisper. She was so afraid of uh, you know who was listening, even in her own home. So. Uh, this has been shrouded in mystery for a long time, and, and of course, it's it's generated a lot of uh, very negative reaction by people who uh, want to perpetuate the status quo in the Vatican of this um, uh, uh, auto demolition that's been going on by the uh, anti-church that was installed once the rightful pope uh, was elected and then overthrown, and this. Uh, Destruction is going on unabated up to the present time, now 64 years later. And, and remind people about that papal conclave in 1958 where the white smoke would be released to signal that a pope had been selected. Black smoke would signal that the pope hadn't been selected yet. And, and tell people uh, what happened there. Well, um, I was tipped off that there was a former Vatican official who knew all about it. His name was Father Jean-Marie Charroux. At the time that I caught up with him, he was offering the Latin Mass at St. Ethelreda's Church in Ely Place, London. I went to see him uh, in July 1993, and I asked him what happened. He said, well, um, on the fourth ballot, on the first day of the conclave, that would have been uh, on 26 October 1958, uh, Siri uh, received the required number of votes after uh, turning down the, the honor at two or three previous scrutinies earlier in the day. Finally, on the 
on the fourth ballot, he received, uh, so we've come to believe from different things that have been written about it, a unanimous vote. Matter of fact, we've gleaned that from series writings himself. And, um, and once a, a candidate receives a unanimous vote for the papacy, he cannot decently refuse the, the, the office because it is, uh, uh, the belief, uh, among uh, the churchmen that it would be the unmistakable will of the Holy Ghost that he be the, the, the new head of the church. So he accepted office, according to what uh, Father Charu told me, and even announced that he would be known as Gregorius the Seventeenth. And the uh, cardinals began to line up and and um, and uh, pay their first obeisances to him, where they would kneel and kiss his ring and everything. And uh, as that was going on, and of course this was no this was no surprise to them. He was the hands-down favorite going into the conclave. Uh, my grandmother had given me uh, a copy of a Sunday pullout section from the Houston Chronicle called the American Weekly. And it clearly stated there in, a, in an article written by Jim Bishop, the author of the famous book, The Day That Christ Died. This article was um, entitled, Who Will Be the Next Pope? And it clearly uh, identified Cardinal Joseph Siri as the most likely uh, cardinal to be elected as the successor to Pope Pius XII. <laughs> so my uh, gathering of uh, information on this goes back to 1957. I'd give you a little idea how old I am. So, but anyway, <laughs> so, uh, but I didn't hear anything more about it until 1974. And then uh, uh, when um, uh, Paul VI died, uh, Luciani was elected as uh, John Paul I, and then he was dead after 34 days, and they had another Quite election. Quite mysteriously. <laughs> right. Looks like right. That, that, that's an interview all by itself. But yeah. In yeah, we'll case, do that it, another time. They had a second, they had a second uh, conclave, and, boy, the, the newspapers in Houston were predicting serious election. Time could be right for Vatican's eternal second runner, read one of the articles. Um, uh Another another uh, article, this was on the front page of the Houston Chronicle, said um, uh, conservative cardinal denies he's a reactionary. And uh, there was a lot of pushback by the really liberal element. But this really didn't tell the whole story, as I will, I will get to in a minute here. But in any case, a threat was brought to bear in 1958 after he had accepted the the office to which he was elected and chose the name he would he would want to be called by as pope. Uh, that really ended the conclave. Conclave was over at that point. What happened afterwards was following the lawful election of the pope, a threat was brought in against the newly elected pope. The threat was the the um, uh, was delivered as a uh, the dropping of a, of a hydrogen bomb on the Vatican unless he beforehand uh, abdicated. Now, now, do we have any idea, like, who delivered this threat and how it was delivered? Because that kind of boggles the imagination. Well, the actual uh, messenger was the, the B'nai B'rith, and they gave it to uh, Cardinal, um, I guess it was, 
I can't recall now if it was Cardinal Bea or or uh, or, um, or Cardinal Leonard, but it, it was. I think it was Cardinal Leonard. Cardinal Leonard. I think it was. Uh, no, I'll tell you what. Who I tell you who it was. Um, it was. It was actually the the uh, the dean of the Sacred College of Cardinals, Cardinal Tisserant. Cardinal Tisserant was the one who uh, was given that. That, that message and, and, uh, and this was delivered to, to the new Pope. And, um, well, in the meantime, no, no, they, they, there would be a reason for people to take this seriously. Like that, that's just, it seems very strange. And did they have some kind of prior intimation that something like this could happen? Well, it could be because on, uh, I think it was May 17th, 1957, the U S began an unprecedented number of hydrogen bomb tests at the Nevada test site outside of Las Vegas. And at the same time, the Soviets were likewise conducting huge uh, nuclear explosions, so much so that they were criticized by um, Andrei Sakharov, who was one of their nuclear scientists. And he said, what, what are we doing? We, we got, we'd learned all we needed to know from the first uh, uh, explosion. We don't need to do this another six or seven times. All we're doing is uh, uh, is is making our you know land and water and air toxic, and so. Uh, but of course, he he could get away with that because he was so important to the Soviet nuclear research. But uh, the U.S. continued these these um, uh, nuclear tests, and there's an interesting series of front page articles. On the um, on the, uh, the newspaper that's um, published there in, in uh, Las Vegas, showing uh, the information about the uh, preparations being made for the conclave in Rome, and on the other side of the front page, you'd see a big mushroom cloud, and every day some big bomb was going off at the Nevada test site. Every single day, as they were leading up to Organizing the conclave, so they they had um, the death of Pope Pius IX on October 9th, and then um, preparations began right away. They, of course, they had the funeral of the Pope, and interesting enough, John Foster Dulles, who was credited with having overthrown more heads of state than any other man that's ever lived, uh, if you if you ever read the book Overthrow by Stephen Kinzer. And in the sequel to that book, The Brothers, which was also by Kinzer about um, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, who was head of the CIA, uh, it told about all the different regime changes that they had carried out all over the world. Well, <laughs> this was the mother of all regime changes, the overthrow of the Pope. And there's, there's a, a State Department document circulating around. It's all over cyberspace. In which it's very obvious that the, um, uh, the State Department did not want to see Cardinal Siri running the church. Uh, and, uh, so this, this set the stage for some kind of interference. However, and this is what people don't understand about this, they actually wanted him elected. And then that would give time for him to be overthrown before his identity was known to the outside world because 
Once he was overthrown illegally, if they proceeded to a second election, the second election would be illegal and invalid. In other words, the second election of some other cardinal, somebody handpicked by them. Now, why do I say that? Well, you see, it doesn't matter whether you believe this or I believe it. These enemies of the church believed that if they elected somebody invalidly, then he would not be protected by the Holy Ghost against teaching uh, heresy and error from the chair Peter, from the top of the, of the church's commanding heights. So uh, he purposely allowed one cardinal to be elected. Then he's overthrown by the threat of the H-bomb of the Vatican, thereby making his, his tacit abdication totally invalid, as per Canon 185, and making the second election totally invalid, as per Canon 2390, canons refer to canon law, church law, and they knew this. And there's even a place in um, in St. James where he says, the devils in hell also believe and do tremble. Whether or not we believe that it works that way, these people obviously believe it. And they went through all the motions of allowing a pope to be lawfully elected. And some of the Freemasons who occupied positions within the conclave, I mean, there were several cardinals who we now know were Masons, they actually voted for Syria. They wanted him to accept so that they could uh, then overthrow him and then vitiate the conclave, uh, uh, totally uh, um, skewing the, the, the results and putting on somebody who was a complete fake, complete fraud. And, and that person, of course, was Angelo Roncalli, who took the name John Twenty-Third, who wasn't even eligible to be pope. The guy had already been... Um, fired from his post at the Gregorian Seminary in 1925 uh, for being suspected of the heresy of modernism. But it was never brought out publicly, so he was sent off to a diplomatic post in Bulgaria where it was thought he wouldn't harm the church. But he did come back to do great harm to the church, and and the harm he, he did was called the Second Vatican Council, which he which he called on the 25th of uh, January 1959, and from that sprang just a, a cornucopia of evils, with the, which is menacing the, the Catholic religion to this day. And so, but you know, he he was old guy, and he he only lived about four and a half years. So they repeated the whole process at another conclave in 1963. And again, Siri was elected and again overthrown. And this time, his invalid replacement was a man named Giovanni Battista Montini. And he was there for 15 years. And he did massive damage to the church, changed all the sacraments, uh, substituting the, the form of the sacraments that had been in use since the time of the apostles with new invalid formulas, some of which had been condemned 500 years before at the Council of Trent. And then... Um, he died after doing this. Is, so that, that 1963 coup, that was, that was the one, that's the 1963 coup that most people haven't thought of. Uh, we all know about the other 1963 coup. Well, for a while, they're right. <laughs> You're talking about the coup d'etat in Dallas? In, 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 yeah, in which our, our, our only Catholic president, because I don't think I really count Biden, <laughs> was, no. uh, was overthrown no. by being shot in the face in broad right. daylight. Yeah. Right, but um, 
the uh, as bad as that was, the overthrow of the Pope was infinitely worse because it affected uh, the entire world. And, uh, of course, I, I would have to say also that uh, the overthrow of President Kennedy, who, who in many ways we might consider uh, President Kennedy to have been a mixed bag, but he was trying to be president. And he was he was determined to take back the reins of power from this um, this invisible government that was really trying to run the, the show. And, of course, they took total control after he was killed. But, he he um, gave that famous conspiracy speech, right? We're, we're faced with this, uh, you know, this huge conspiracy. And uh, that's been a tough one for the establishment people to explain away. They, they say he was talking about communism. And, yeah, I think that was part of it. But I don't think that was all of it. No, and, and uh, I know what you're talking about. It was his address called The President and the Press that was given to the Washington Press Club at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel on 27th of April, 1961. Wow, very, you're pretty very, good. Very soon in his presidency, <laughs> you, can go to the, um, um, you can go to the Kennedy Library website, and you can hear it live. I mean, it's crystal clear. And he's saying that... Um, he said, uh, we, um, as Americans, have an abhorrence to uh, secret societies and secret oaths. Well, this was a shot across the, the bow toward Freemasonry, which was um, the forerunner to communism. And so just that speech alone was sufficient to get Kennedy killed. Mm-hmm. And But the Freemasons had, a, they, uh, they had an agenda, and I have to... Uh, combine that with um, with uh, Talmudic Judaism because uh, Freemasonry came from Talmudism. Uh, and and Freemasonry- so you would, you would basically agree with the thesis that there's been a, a struggle between different religions and religious communities going way back, and that Freemasonry, to a large extent, was created and steered by a certain group of Jews or people coming out of the Jewish community and it's mainly it was mainly designed to control and or destroy Christianity as a rival power. Yes. And um, as it is often said, uh, that Freemasonry is Talmudic, Talmudic, uh, Talmudic Judaism for non-Jews. And they right. basically they, they don't like do, Islam much either, by the way. <laughs> well, no. And, and their plan ultimately is to have um, World War Three with uh, uh Christian armies fighting uh, uh, Islam on the battlefield. I can see 9-11 took them a long way towards that goal. Yes, it? yes, it did. Yes, it did. And uh, until they were stopped in Syria by a confluence of the uh, uh, Syrian Arab army, Hezbollah militia, Iranian special forces, Iraqi special forces, and the Russian Air Force. And that combination... Uh, killed, killed uh, the 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 uh, ISIS advance across Syria, and um, the man that was primarily responsible for organizing the defeat of ISIS was General uh, Qasem Soleimani. He was he was a uh, Muslim, obviously. He was from uh, uh, Iran, was the third highest man in the government, but he was hailed from Christian pulpits all over Syria as having been the rescuer of Christians in Syria. And, of course, uh, shamefully, he was murdered by Donald J. Trump on January 3rd, 2020, uh, on his way to peace talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran 
and and um, uh, Somalia. In uh, at well, a blessed be the peacemakers, but sometimes the devil uh, shoots them down. Yeah, it wasn't meant to be that day, and uh, that was a terrible, terrible mark on this country's uh, history. And uh, so, in any case. Uh, that's 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 where this is all. That's where yeah, this I, is all I agree with. I agree with this com- uh, completely, Gary. And and I wonder if we could maybe relate this now to the Fatima mystery. In that, the Fatima mystery seemed to involve Russia. It, it was the Fatima visions happened in 1917, and of course that was getting towards the end of World War One. It was also the eve of the Bolshevik Revolution. And the Virgin warned these three children that uh, there were kind of terrible things brewing in Russia. Russia needed to be consecrated to God by way of, of the, her, Our Lady, etc. And so Russia uh, played a role in these prophecies. Russia was under this communist system, which was very anti-religion, uh, and that's now disappeared. Russia seems to be returning to Christianity and uh, standing up for Christians as well as real Muslims in Syria uh, may be one of the reasons that Russia seems to be under the gun right now with this war in Ukraine that our media is framing as Russian aggression, but which many of us believe is really NATO aggression. Absolutely. Well, um, at the time that uh, the Virgin Mary appeared to the three Fatima children, uh, World War One was still in progress. Um the Bolshevik revolution had not taken place, uh, and uh, so Russia was still Russia. And, she, and Our Lady warned about Russia spreading her errors. And she said, she said Russia. She did not say uh, Soviet Union. And so there's always been some question about that. At that time, and we went over this in a previous interview the other day, uh, there was a... Um, a real problem that Russia had going back to the 1700s with abortion, when it was practically unheard of in um, uh, most of the rest of the world. And, and by 1900, uh, it was being promoted by associations of uh, doctors, nurses, health givers, midwives. And uh, uh, this, this really did have an impact around the world. No, I, I didn't know that Russia was a pioneer in abortion. I knew that there were a large number of abortions under communism, and those have continued to a certain extent after the fall of communism, but I didn't realize it predated that. I didn't know it myself until recently. And uh, so, of course, when the Bolsheviks came in, the, the, it was still a, a criminal act, but it had been the, the, the death penalty had been removed for transgressing that law by Peter the Great. So it was basically unenforceable, or at least they chose not to enforce it. The Bolsheviks came in, and in 1920, they decriminalized it completely. In just four years, they had to recriminalize it because it was wiping out the, 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 the population to such an, uh, an alarming degree that they even, even the communists could figure out that if um, – if the future workforce of of the uh, workers' paradise was wiped out, you know, no, no more workers, no more workers' paradise. So, so they tried to control it. They tried to, to slow it down. And so there, there was a there was a pattern of uh, 
of lenience and then crackdown. It's, it kind of seesawed back and forth. But um, it continued even though illegal some of the time. And I think by the 1960, it was fully legalized again. And by 1965, uh, the number of abortions in, in Russia hit an all-time high of 8.5 million um, abortions that year alone. Wow. So, so no wonder they have a demographic problem. Well, exactly right. And, they, and, of course, they have a drug problem. They have an alcoholism problem. They had a, great, a brain drain problem during the Yeltsin years, too, even after the collapse of communism. So for self-preservation, uh, the Russian government under Putin did two things. They, they um, reinvigorated the state church, the Russian Orthodox Church, and they set out on a campaign to rebuild, refurbish, restore uh, 30,000 churches in, in Russia, and they got the state actively involved in, uh, in uh, elaborate uh, liturgical worship in, in the churches, not only in the major cities, but even in small towns. Uh, President Putin goes to these small villages, and he'll visit these little small town churches, and even participated in uh, one of these big pilgrimages to the... Uh, pilgrimage site of St. Vladimir the Great. I think about 35,000 people participate in that every year. He's, he's gone and spoken there before. So, uh, And then the other thing they've done is they have really clamped down on sodomy, which was decriminalized by the Soviets. And, but now in the, in the uh, Russian Constitution, as of January 2020, uh, by a referendum vote of 77%, the people of Russia voted to amend their constitution, recognizing matrimony or marriage as a union between a man and a woman. Now, some years ago, several years ago, <clears throat> Russia is defined in, uh, uh, in this constitution, the Russian Federation's constitution, as a Christian nation. And so, uh, but, they still have not corrected this problem of abortion. Now, there's a lot of pro-life groups there in Russia. They may have tried to curtail it to some extent, but it's still pretty much uh, wide open abortion on demand. And until they they do that, until they fix that problem and, and criminalize it again and really enforce the law on that, um, it's it's kind of hard to take them completely seriously as a as a Christian nation because that's really kind of fundamental, you know, the right to life. Well, it also occurs to me, Gary, that the apparition of Fatima warning against these errors out of Russia, mm -hmm. uh, it it obviously was sending a message uh, in many different ways, and it you know taking it from you know I, I have training as a literary scholar and in you know interpreter in the humanities. And so when I look at something like this, I almost gravitate towards almost sort of a Jungian perspective of what is the archetype here? You know, what is the message from the deep collective unconscious of our you know, deepest being? Or another a simpler way of putting it is what is God trying to tell us here? And so what, what is God trying to tell us when he gives us this huge miracle that's the biggest miracle of modern times and involves the appearance of uh, of, of the Virgin Mary, the icon 
of purity, of feminine purity and motherhood. Uh, and first, of course, it could be correcting the drift in monotheistic religions towards too much of a patriarchal and male sort of view of things because, of course, men have largely run organized religion and almost everything else and somewhat you know, in their own image. So it, it could be correcting things in that regard. But also, remember, you know, it made me think of the, you know, the, the, the scarlet woman in Revelations is kind of a symbol of female impurity. And we're in the Kali Yuga, the end times, according to the, the Hindu cyclical theory, uh, that's the that's Hindu for end times, and Kali is the uh, demon, demonic quote, quote unquote goddess, goddess of death, the goddess of death, right? Mm-hmm. So the the maybe what the God is telling us by sending us Mary as this miraculous apparition to a place where it's named after the leading uh, female uh, Islamic character Fatima, right? So so Muslims are supposed to pay attention to this too, is that we need to connect with God through not just the divine feminine in general, but more specifically the pure, uh, the, the, you know, the, the pure and spotless and virginal, uh, as well as the, uh, the mother image, the nurturing side, this, this purity side of the divine feminine, which has really been messed with in modern culture. Our culture today, I mean, the internet is just full of pictures of, uh, of wanton women, uh, Etc. Etc. That's the the cultural ideal has become, you know, the woman is supposed to imitate the man and run around doing sexual conquest, wear shoulder pads to work, uh, throw her children in daycare at, at six weeks or maybe even six days, uh, and not be feminine or uh, a pure virginal and then mother figure at all. Right. So there's a war on that, and so maybe that's part of what God is telling us through. This, this image that, that our culture is now way overbalanced, not only towards the masculine side of the divine, which includes trying to force women to be, be like men, uh, but also to the extent that we have a, a kind of a dominant female archetype guiding our culture, it's more, you know, the whore of Babylon or the scarlet woman or Kali, the goddess of death. So that, this is part of what I take to be perhaps God's message with this. What do you think of that? Well, uh, Prior to Christianity, I mean, women were little more than chattel property. And when uh, uh, the church became established and the role of Mary in bringing the Redeemer into the world was understood, then the status of women in society was greatly ennobled. Because the, the Christian women wanted to emulate uh, the Virgin Mary, and, uh, and it was recognized then that they had an equal but different function to that of the men. And, uh, and you know, she's, she's also the Quranic uh, kind of role model for women as well. Yes, I, I understand. I've heard that. And in, in any case, uh, so uh, women can thank uh, the Virgin, uh, Blessed Virgin Mary as um, the person that uh, liberated them from, uh, as I say, from just being uh, just uh, uh, disregarded property, and to having a recognized, exalted role in society. In fact, you know, they have the most important well, it looks like job we've, that we've is. hit one of those blips. Okay. Well, they, they have the they have the most important role of um, of begin of of, of carrying, uh, delivering, and then raising the next generation of children into adulthood. And uh, so they play a 
they play an indispensable role in the survival of the human race. And uh, if the um, abortionists have their way, well, then, of course, the human race disappears. And all of which is uh, would suit the devil just fine. Uh, because, well, some uh, of these people are transhumanists. They would rather just manufacture people in test tubes, I guess. <laughs> well, I guess if they think they can get away with it. But uh, but in any case, uh, so when she first appeared, though, it was just to the three children. And they were reluctant to tell the adults about it. They were afraid they might get punished. They wouldn't be believed. But eventually word got out. And there was a film actually made by Warner Brothers, of all people. In 1952, Miracle of Our Lady of Fatima. And it was, you know, with some artistic license that they took, more or less told the story of, of what happened to those children until more and more people found out about it and found out that the um, Blessed Mother was uh, appearing to these children on the 13th of every, every month, beginning on this day 105 years ago at Fatima, Portugal. And until finally... Um, the people were asking for a sign to know for certain that she really was appearing to those children. And she promised a sign would be given to them. Well, by this time, the irreligious uh, secular newspaper uh, got involved and wanted to debunk the whole story. So they came to, to the COVID era uh, in Fatima where our, uh, 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 our lady was going to appear. On the 13th of October, and when she did, when then she did come, she, uh, the, the miracle happened, as she predicted, and it was uh, the a vision of what appeared to be the sun spinning in the sky like a pinwheel, throwing off uh, brilliant rays of light in different colors, going in all directions, but also appearing, be hurling toward the earth. Many people thought it was the end of the world, that were, Earth was going to collide with the sun. And they were terrified. And the, um, it was about 70 to 80,000 people there. Well, the old secular press was there, and they were terrified, too. And they reported what they saw accurately. So I guess it made believers in them, too, you know? Yeah, the, uh, the attempt to debunk this kind of remind me of the people who you know, try to debunk, like, let's say, a UFO sighting that is on, it's on radar and, you know, it's it's got testimony from the military people that they found pieces of the crashed saucer and all this sort of stuff. And then the debunkers say, oh, it was uh, swamp gas. <laughs> you <know>? There you <laughs> go. <laughs> well, anyway, so but what was what was the uh, Blessed Virgin's telling those children during those months that she was appearing? Well, several things. She said that um, she predicted the name of a future pope, Pius XI. At that time, the pope was Benedict XV. And she said that uh, during the reign of, of Pius XI, there will be a, a night will come that will be illumined by an unknown light. And you will know then that the second great war is, is at hand. Well, there was a, a strange appearance. Some people thought it was a, uh, an unusual manifestation of the Aurora Borealis. But it was not the typical bluish green color of the aurora. It was uh, red. And it illuminated uh, all of Europe. It illuminated the skies on that night. It was uh, January 19, 1938. And it was seen in some states like Minnesota, 
probably Wisconsin too, that same night. And sure enough, uh, World War II started uh, not that long after that. You know, Germany marched into Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, and then um, uh, ultimately uh, Britain got pulled into the war on uh, what was it, September first, September second, nineteen thirty-nine. So. Uh, but this was predicted, and she said that this happened because people had not heeded the warning, had not turned away from, from sin, uh, had not saying their, said their prayers. A specific prayer requested was the, the Holy Rosary, which had been around since uh, 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 the 10th century. And so... Um, she said also that this second more terrible war would come. And if people still did not turn from their sinful ways, a third and even more terrible war would follow. And it seems like we're on the doorstep of that. Yeah, that's, that's kind of frightening because I don't really see people having decisively turned away from their sinful ways. Oh, you don't think recently. so? Really? <laughs> I mean, maybe they have somewhere, but I just it doesn't kind of look like that's been the majority behavioral thing. But. Hey, what do I know? <laughs> only only God knows for sure. But yeah, it, it sure does kind of feel like the end times. And you know, I've I've studied with Islam's leading eschatologist, Sheikh Imran Hossein, and his way of seeing these things really lines up we're very, very close to yours. Uh it's uh it's interesting that people well, get to the same point for, through two different traditions. One of the things that she said also, she said, I will come to ask for the consecration to my Immaculate Heart. She just kind of left it there. Well, it was uh, it was 12 years later. She appeared to Sister Lucy, who by this time was a uh, professed religious at a convent in Tui, Spain. And, and she was the only survivor of these three children who had That's seen That's right. The other two children died during the Spanish flu epidemic, and uh, as was predicted. And at that time, the uh, Mother of God asked uh, Sister Lucy to um, have the Pope consecrate Russia, specifically Russia, to her Immaculate Heart. And, uh, of course, Sister Lucy had to work through the local bishop, and he had to convey the the message to the the, uh, chair Peter at this time. The Pope, uh, Benedict XV, who in 1920 had declared Fatima worthy of belief, had died. And then he was replaced by uh, Pius XI. And Pius XI inherited a whole host of characters in the Vatican that uh, did not want the, the knowledge of that apparition to go beyond the borders of Portugal. It was very much suppressed. And so, I mean, this this goes way, way back, and that could be a subject for another interview. But in any case, he was ill-advised about what it was that the uh, Blessed Virgin Mary wanted him to do. And so it was not done. So he died in 1939, probably poisoned from the evidence that we have, as he was starting to wake up, figure out what was going on. Pius XII came in in 1942. He wanted to do the consecration, but he, again, was ill-advised about how it was supposed to be done. And, and majority opinion holds that uh, it wasn't done as she specified. Again, it was done in 52, 10 years later, 
And once again, the formula that she requested was not used by the Pope. And the bishops, which were supposed to um, jointly carry out the consecration with the uh, with the Pope, uh, did not participate. And, and I've heard reports, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it could be, that uh, he had a revolt on his hands. They didn't want to, they did not want to do it. I don't know if they were afraid of a, a backlash by the USSR. I don't know. I'm not sure. But um, then fast forward to 2013, 2015, Vladimir Putin shows up in the Vatican for his first state visit with Francis, who, of course, uh, and, and we get into this sometime, uh, I will have to tell the, the uh, listeners that uh, he's no more pope than I am. But he, he, uh, Putin is supposed to have asked Francis, what about the consecration of Russia? This is very interesting because Putin is not a Catholic, mm-hmm. although, although some Russian Orthodox observers have commented on his abiding interest in Catholicism. In any case, he asked about this consecration of Russia and he was rebuffed by a rather terse reply from Francis. We do not discuss Fatima. And now I know that um, some of the listeners will say, well, hey, well, Francis just did the consecration of Russia on March 25th. Well, it was a simulated uh, consecration. And in in the uh, Italian formula that he used, he referred to the to to the um, the the mother who comes from the, 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 the land from the sky. And this is a title not given to the Blessed Virgin Mary, but to the Pachimama pagan idol that um, that he brought into the Vatican a couple of years ago, uh, showing uh, a a very dubious Marian devotion on the part of this uh, this so-called pope, who uh, we believe is uh, people that work with me in this research, is just a continuation of a series of anti-popes we've had now six of them over the last 64 years as the church is going down the tubes and the, the world is going down the tubes with it because the church is no longer uh, a, a leaven of, um, of uh, grace and moderation in, in the world. It's, it's just it's been completely eclipsed by this this false church. And, and this perspective sounds a lot like what uh, Sheikh Imran Hossein talks about when he talks about Gog and Magog or uh, Yajuj and Majuj, which in the Quranic terms, mm-hmm. spreading their evil, you know, they, they break through the barrier in the uh, in the end times and swarm all over the world. And he identifies the Western materialistic uh, Zionist influenced world as uh, Gog and Magog and sees that the, the West has largely been taken over by these satanic forces and would would you tend to agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And you know, earlier you mentioned the, the Scarlet Woman, right? Well, you know, the, the Church is is referred to by Catholics as the Immaculate Spouse of Christ. Uh, its foundation is the Rock of Peter, the Papal Office, um, because Catholics believe that Christ established Peter, whose name. Petrus means rock, as the foundation of of the of the church's government and doctrine and discipline, and that this would be passed on to Peter's successors. Well, 
uh, once uh, Peter, Peter's successor in 1958 was was taken out of the way, and an agent for the for the New World Order took his place. Well, then we have the, the Scarlet Woman you're talking about because. The, or I should say the harlot, which is also referred to in the apocalypse. Uh, the, the harlot is dressed in purple and scarlet, it says, in the scriptures. Well, uh, that's the color of the, of the episcopacy and, and, and the, the bishops and the cardinals. That's the colors that they wear. It says that she sits upon two beasts. Well, the whole conciliar church, the whole anti-church that grew out of Vatican II, sits upon the foundation of these two beasts, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. We believe, some of us believe, the beast of the sea is Angelo Rontali, Johnny Twenty-Third, who was given a political appointment as Patriarch of Venice, which is built on the sea. He had no previous pastoral experience. He never, he never functioned as a parish priest. He was always a diplomat. And uh, so... He was put in that position. And the beast of the earth, we think, is Giovanni Montini. Uh, Montini means mountains. Mountains are of the earth, and there's three mountains in his coat of arms. Roncalli convoked the council. Montini ratified the council. So the council is bookended by these two anti-popes. And the whole structure of this false church, this, this harlot dressed in scarlet and purple, rests upon... Uh, the, these two anti-popes, that's the underpinning of the entire conciliar church apparatus. And the true Catholic church, which was, as I say, the Immaculate Spouse of Christ, which had as its foundation the Rock of Peter, has been completely uh, exiled from Rome. So, so and, how, how do you respond to people like my, some of my Catholic friends who would argue against you by saying that God is going to protect the church by making sure that whoever is in charge of it, regardless of their personal qualities, somehow always orders the right thing in terms of their, you know, speaking ex cathedra. Uh, that belief, you know, of course, one of the reasons that I'm, you know, a Muslim coming out of a Unitarian background is that I, that just sounds like mythology to me. Uh, I'm, I can't, <laughs> I can't be that irrational. I have to, you know, critique it rationally and say that's just highly unlikely. It doesn't look that way to me. But how, how do you respond to those? Kinds well, of I mean, Catholic, all real Catholics believe that the Pope, uh, when he's defining faith and morals and imposing a teaching on the universal church, does speak ex cathedra from the chair uh, and is infallible in those teachings. But he has to be the Pope that does it. And any Pope is not uh, protected that way. And people that would uh, uh, oppose this, I would say to them, you don't know your church history. You don't know the fact that um, in the Honorario Pontificio, which is the official index of bishops published by the uh, Vatican Library every March, it gives an entire uh, uh, list in, in chronological order of all the popes. But parenthetically, in between those popes, it lists the names of all the anti-popes. The Honorario lists 37 anti-popes in the history of the papacy not even including the modern antipopes. If you go to more uh, detailed papal histories, like the lives and times of the popes by De Montour in 10 volumes, well, you're going to find, you know, 44, 45, maybe 50 uh, antipopes listed in there. So, you know, some of them not uh, 
that were not real important, but still false claimants to the papal chair. So those people were not uh, recognized by the church as being infallible in their teachings. And so these anti-popes in the modern age should not be either. And I know, I, Jerry, were any of these anti-popes from history widely acclaimed and, and almost universally believed by a great majority of Catholics to be real popes or not? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, during the time of Anacletus II, all the people of Rome believed that he was the, the real pope. Uh, nearly all the bishops of Europe believed he was a true pope. Only uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux knew that he was a fake. Uh, he had known him when he was a layperson. He was the son of a Jewish merchant. His name was Pietro Pierleone. He knew he was a totally corrupt individual. And sure enough, when St. Bernard went to Rome to investigate what happened, he found out that he had bought and paid for uh, the votes that he got from a majority of the cardinals. And he also learned out that a group of senior cardinals got together beforehand, before the main conclave, and elected uh, Gregory Paparesci, who became uh, Innocent II. And so his election uh, uh, preceded the election of the anti-pope, but this was not generally known to the, uh, to the um, people of Rome or to the Euro uh, European bishops. It was only after Anacletus died that, that, um, uh, that uh, St. Bernard was able to get a trial held during the Second Lateran Council in which all of these uh, facts came out. Anacletus was declared posthumously to have been an anti-pope. All of his decrees were stricken from the books. The heresies that he uh, had allowed to be promoted uh, were completely disavowed by the church. And the bishops he appointed, with a uh, few exceptions, were deposed. So the Catholics that would, uh, that would uh, uh, you know, discount what we're saying, they simply don't know church history. Very interesting. And, well, you know, one of the reasons I always joke that, that I love Islam is that I hate organized religion. And, of course, that's not entirely true uh, or fair. But it, it does seem to me that, as one tries to organize religion, that you get these bureaucratic kinds of structures that then uh, attract power-seeking people, like these corrupt people who became anti-popes and so on. And it just makes more sense to me to look at an institution like the Catholic Church as a bunch of human beings who are sometimes going to get either individual or collective divine guidance. In fact, they're always getting it. It's just whether they follow and listen to it or not. But the idea that there's this thing, a bureaucracy out there, or some entity called the Catholic Church, which always has a correct pope, and if they're correct, then they're infallible when speaking ex cathedra. Uh, to me, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, uh, I, I'm, I can't resist just being a skeptic. It's Occam's razor tells me that the simpler explanation is the better, and so that's why I'm not a Catholic. <laughs> But, well, uh, come over to my house and we can talk about it. Well, there you go. And, well, I'll have to have you back on the show because there's so many more things to talk about. Uh, but certainly this Fatima apparition issue is one that could bring a lot of people together. Include, I think Muslims in particular should be thinking about the fact that uh, Mary is such a huge part of our faith, too, and, and Jesus is, too. And we need to communicate this to Christians because so many Christians don't know that. That's at least one of the important lessons, and there are so many others as well. Well, well, well the, so conver the conversion of Russia is ex exceedingly important. 
because uh, Russia, if it if it becomes a force for good, with its massive military might, it will it will be able to um, uh, overcome the the new world okay. order. Well, let's let's uh, let's pray for the triumph of the force of good over the new world order. Thank you, Gary Jufri. It's been wonderful talking, and look forward to talking again. Inshallah. Thanks for having. Me. Okay, thank you. Gary Jeffrey. We'll be back in the next hour for more talk about the Fatima apparition anniversary of the Sacramento Peter Chatsworth.